You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Kenya's Supreme Court voids that country's presidential election results over electronic irregularities in the balloting. The Chinese step up cyber espionage against Vietnam during South China Sea disputes. Ransomware continues to surge this week. WikiLeaks dumps Angel Fire documents from Vault 7. Reality Winner says she wasn't properly Mirandized by the FBI. North Korea raids South Korean Bitcoin exchanges. And get ready for WhopperCoin. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 1st, 2017. In a surprise ruling, Kenya's Supreme Court voided that country's presidential elections over irregularities in the balloting. The August 8th elections had returned incumbent Uhuru Kenyatta to office, and the losing opposition candidate, Raila Odinga, had petitioned the court to nullify the results, charging that the vote had been hacked and otherwise electronically manipulated. Few thought Odinga's suit had much merit, particularly since international observers had concluded the election was fairly conducted. Mr. Odinga himself seems as surprised as anyone by the decision. The court has directed that a new election be held within 60 days. FireEye says Chinese cyber operators have increased their attacks on government and business targets in Vietnam. The attacks coincide with increased tension over South China Sea territorial claims. Locky and other ransomware have surged this week. One strain is even reported to have been present in certain U.S. government websites. WikiLeaks yesterday dumped documents purporting to describe a CIA implant framework, AngelFire, said to be effective against Windows 7 and Windows XP machines. Bleeping computer sniffs that if AngelFire is indeed a CIA product, it doesn't represent Langley's best work. Its discussion characterizes the tools described as crude. The presumed targets are also old, which again leads one to wonder when and how WikiLeaks is getting the material it's producing. There are suspicions about other leaks, and some of those have taken the form of indictments. The legal proceeding currently in the news is the one in a Georgia U.S. federal court. Accused leaker and former NSA contractor Reality Winner has told that court she wasn't properly Mirandized when she first spoke with FBI special agents searching her apartment. Her lawyers have petitioned to have the things she said to those agents excluded at trial. Reports indicate that her conversation with the feds amounted to a confession, which would explain their eagerness to keep it out. 
Reality winner, you will recall, is the former Air Force service member who was inadvertently outed to U.S. authorities by The Intercept when it contacted them to authenticate the documents winner allegedly passed to the publication. North Korean operators have this week been more closely tied to raids on South Korean Bitcoin exchanges. The DPRK is expected to make more such attacks as it seeks to compensate for revenue lost from sanctions imposed to constrain its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Finally, cryptocurrency meets the Hamburglar. Well, not exactly, since it's Burger King and not a McDonald's innovation, and we'd be the last people to suggest that there's no difference between the two global fast food titans. I mean, we've been to the food court at the Towson Town Center. We know what's up. So let's call it the blockchain comes to the Burger King. Anyway, here's what's up in the Arbat and in lots of other convenient locations throughout greater Moscow. Burger King has introduced its own cryptocurrency, WhopperCoin, to its Russian operations. Every ruble you spend on a Vopper, Vopper Junior, Gomburger, or even a Lonkbiff in Chilabinsk or Krasnodar will get you one Whopper coin, which is a pretty sweet way of having it your way in our book. When you've amassed 1,700 Whopper coin, you can exchange them for a tasty, flame-grilled, non-virtual Whopper. The BBC has saved our staff data scientists the trouble of checking menus, exchange rates, and actually adding and doing the troublesome long division. And the Beeb estimate that customers will be able to get a free sandwich for every five or six they buy with real money. Real money. Ha! Like cryptocurrency isn't real money. Get with the times, BBC. And while you're at it, put on your bowler, ankle on down to the local Burger King instead of the Drones Club, and just imagine the possibilities. So anyway, the king is working with the cryptocurrency startup Wave, which says it's already generated a billion Whopper coin to prep for the big launch, which they're not calling an initial coin offering, but which we think they should. So why is this not just an ordinary loyalty program? Well, it sort of is when you think about it, which is pretty much the point. One of the problems with all sorts of loyalty programs, from airline miles to supermarket bonus points, is the limited range of things you can exchange them for. Another is the difficulty of keeping track of them, the heated altercations at the counter, and so on. So a cryptocurrency would be a good way of having it your way, a little like the old SNH green stamps your great-grandmother used to save, only without the gluey taste. Burger King Russia Communications Director Ivan Shistov says the company has transformed the Whopper into an investment vehicle. As he put it, Now it's not just a burger, which is loved in more than 90 countries, but it's also a tool for investment. Experts predict a rapid increase in the cost of cryptocurrency. Therefore, eating one today is a reserve for financial well-being tomorrow. Academic experts think Burger King may be onto something. Cryptocurrency mavens at both Cambridge and Cornell think loyalty programs are a good use case for the blockchain. So the next time you're passing down Zvetnoy Boulevard, remember... It's not just a sandwich, it's practically a 401k. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Um, we saw an article come by from Quartz, and mm-hmm. the uh, the headline was, Using a Fitness App Taught Me the Scary Truth About Why Privacy Settings Are a Feminist Issue. And um, really, to, sort of the, to summarize the the, uh, the article here, there's a woman who used an app to track her running. Right. And she thought she had disabled the ability for anyone else to see what she was doing. Right. Um, but it turns out this app has a lot of different levels of security. She had turned off public sharing, but she hadn't turned off being posted to the leaderboard. Right. And because she was such a good runner, she made it to the leaderboard and suddenly she started getting messages from people who she didn't know saying, yep. hey, great run around that place you were today that you weren't intending to share with everyone. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is one of the consequences of making everything social. Right. Is yeah. uh, now people that you don't know become part of your social circle. And I use social with uh, scare quotes around it because <laughs> you're a big fan of the social right. sharing. Right. Right. And being, be, <laughs> being someone who generally avoids social interaction myself, uh, <laughs> I don't fill out my complete profile on Facebook. Um, right. You know, I'm sure Facebook knows exactly where I live, but, you know, it's not listed on my profile because the data has not been entered into my profile. People need to be aware that when you're working with these apps that claim to be social, and I use a social fitness app, mm-hmm. when you're working with them, you are sharing this information with people, uh, and you're making it available to people you might not want to make it available to. Yeah, and, and the woman who wrote this article made the point that this could be a safety issue. because it absolutely could be a safety issue. Who know, you know, She did not intend to share the location of her runs. Right, and but just by using the app, she did inadvertently. And so it's also the point of whether or not you need to opt in or opt out. Yeah, that's a good point. There's there's a, a big debate around that. You know, I, I see both sides of the issue. You know, I, I see the, the definite personal responsibility side of the issue. But, you know, at some point in time, we're talking about large amounts of, of data being gathered. And that's something I would rather opt into than have to opt out of. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like the, the European standard is right. to opt in. Yep. And for those of us here in the United States... 
You're opted in. <laughs> right. You're opted in. You have to opt out. <laughs> right. uh, but to be fair, the European standard, um, if you go to a European website, their, their opt-in policy is opt-in or don't use the service. I see. Uh, so, you know, you log on and this says, this site uses cookies. If you don't like that, leave the site. And if you click OK, then they start gathering cookies. And if you leave the site, then you can't use the, use the service. Right. Right. So I guess the bottom line here is uh, buyer beware. Right. Um, I hate to say read the EULA because that's... <laughs> Nobody does that. That's a, it's unrealistic, really. Right, I mean, we're, we're, who am I kidding? Yeah, but, uh, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I guess if, if privacy is a concern for you, uh, it's worth shopping around to try to find... There, there's no shortage of fitness apps out there. There so is no shortage of these things. Try to find the one that respects your privacy, and and uh, and if there is one that starts out from the get go as, you know, making you opt into sharing these things. You agree? I do agree. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were waiting for me to say something. <laughs> it's it's caveat emptor, pretty much all the time. All right, you're on your own. Yeah. All right, Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for joining. My us. My pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Charles Henderson. He's the global head of IBM's X-Force Red, where he leads a team doing penetration testing as well as vulnerability research. Among his areas of research are connected cars, and not long ago, he had some direct experience with some automotive vulnerabilities. Several years ago, uh, I bought a connected car, and it was this awesome car. It was convertible. Uh, it, was, it was really my dream car. Family grew, and the car was, it just wasn't practical. So I traded it in, but the interesting thing was I had this app that controlled all sorts of things, and I could geolocate the car and, and do all sorts of fun stuff with it. And I noticed that my old car was still listed uh, when I got home and enrolled my new car into the app. And I, I'd done a factory reset of the the old car before I traded it in because I didn't want you know my contacts for, uh, from Bluetooth going to the new owner. I, I I wanted the car to be fresh and clean, and you know I, I'm sort of paranoid as a security researcher as well. Sure. Uh, I, I figured that eventually the dealership would reset the control of the car and that it was just a matter of the fact that it had just been a few days since I'd sold the car. Well, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into years, and now, I guess it's been four years now, I still have access to that old car. So what can you do? Can, can you can you remotely start it? Are you able to freak out the new owners? Or what? yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the headline is car possessed. <laughs> um, I, I can geolocate it. Um, 
shortly after we reported this issue, the, um, many of the car companies, their geolocation capabilities of cars, um, so that you could you had to be within one mile of the car to geolocate it. The problem is that you self-report where you were located, so your phone self-reports where it's located. And I, I wrote an app that um, basically lied about where it was, where the, my phone was located. And at about you know roughly 300 web requests, you can cover most metropolitan areas. I think New York was like the New York City was like 312. I can geolocate it. I can honk the horn, adjust the climate control, wow. um, things like that. I, I can actually unlock it. The reason that this still works is they they, they didn't deprovision my access, and, and it's important because that second owner doesn't think of their car as a connected car. They think of their car as a car because it functions exactly the way it's supposed to. And there's no uh, warning light on the dash. Hey, Charles Henderson's accessing your car. Right. It, 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 you know, it's sort of the same phenomenon as IOT in general. Uh, what does a connected light bulb look like? It looks like a light bulb. <laughs> so you notify the manufacturers that this is an issue. What was the response? And that's, that's the really interesting part. So at first, the manufacturer said, well, you know, this is a a dealership problem. We went through the responsible vulnerability disclosure process with the dealership. I think that was mainly just to see what would happen. Turns out, no, a dealership is not equipped to handle this. And candidly, you'd have to notify thousands of dealerships across the world. At first, there was uh, there was a push that, oh, it's the first owner's responsibility to make sure that their access is deprovisioned. And actually, some of the car companies, had, the legal teams at least, had on, obviously thought about this because there were there were some lines in some of the car companies' car uh, automobile contracts that that said in the T's and C's for accessing the uh, app that it was the first owner's responsibility. Basically, that you're responsible for decommissioning your access. Other car companies compared it to having a set of keys and, and keeping them. But it's very different than keys because my keys don't geolocate the car. It's a very heightened level of access. In the long run, though, the car companies realized it was an issue and you're starting to see them try to deal with it. We've actually been in contact with them and running through some of the scenarios they might use uh, as a solution to the problem. The key here is that when they were designing that car, when they were making it connected, they were thinking so much about getting the car off the lot and not about three years down the line when the car got sold. Was there no provision by which the car's new owner or manufacturer could disable your access to that car? The car's new owner could if they knew that I had access to the car, but it, it, it's kind of a almost a catch-22 where they don't know I have access w without checking, and they don't check because they don't know I have access. Right. Uh, so, so somewhere buried in a menu, there may be a list of, of the people or devices that have access to this car, but why would you go looking for that menu if you think you were getting a clean car? That's where it gets worse. It's not actually a menu in the car. They would have to actually go to the dealership and talk to um, someone that many dealerships call them a provisioning specialist. Basically, uh, they go deep into a system, and, and that's because in the early stages of Connected Car, that account subsystem wasn't really exposed. And even if there's a web portal where you could log in and, and check who has access to the car, unless you're using the Connected Car function, you're probably never gonna see that web portal. So increasingly, what you're seeing manufacturers do is say, hey, we really need a menu in the car 
that, that shows who has access. You know, and it also underscores a, a problem that you see in a lot of in a lot of areas of security. Everyone thought it was someone else's responsibility. Mm. The, the, the new car dealership thought it was the used lot's responsibility. The used uh, car dealership thought it was the car manufacturer's responsibility. The car manufacturer thought it was the owner's responsibility. The owner thought, hey, I don't have access to the system. How on earth could this be my responsibility? You start seeing this sort of convoluted web of ownership. And the truth is, if you have disagreement about whose responsibility security is, security is no one's responsibility. Um, there needs to be clearly defined responsibility chain for security to work. And, and this is an example of security failing because no one had ownership. That's Charles Henderson from IBM's X-Force Red. We've got an extended version of this interview on our Patreon page for our supporters there. Go to patreon.com slash the cyberwire to check it out. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.